Welcome to all talks of the First World Sepsis Congress. My name is Marvin and over the next two hours we will discuss epidemiology and long-term consequences of sepsis. We have a fabulous lineup of speakers and the session will be chaired by Flavia Macaro from Brazil. Please keep in mind to use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for First World Sepsis Congress there. Now let me hand it over to Flavia to get this session going. Hi, uh, hi, everybody that is still with us in this very last session of our first World Sepsis Congress. And uh, I have the pleasure to share this session that we're going to talk about the epidemiology and long-term consequences of sepsis. I don't want to delay myself at this time, so let's just introduce our very, very nice speakers for this uh, last session. The first speaker is going to be Derek Angus. Derek? I don't think that he needs any presentation at all, but anyway, he is professor and vice chair of research in the Department of Critical Care Medicine on uh, the University of Pittsburgh, and he's also director of the Queensman. He is specialized in epidemiological, economic, and health services research aspects of critical illness focusing on sepsis, and he certainly has published lots and lots and lots of very nice papers. Today, Derek is going to give us a keynote speak about epidemiology of sepsis. Derek, welcome. So thank you, Flavia. Yes, I'm most appreciative to be invited to speak by the organizers. This is a great event. Uh, I was asked to speak for about 12 minutes on the epidemiology of sepsis. That's not really possible. So I thought I would speak on a subset of the epidemiology of sepsis, specifically talk about how we count sepsis and in particular about the interaction between two questions, what is sepsis and who gets it? If we go back and think about our current conceptual definition of sepsis, we would think of sepsis, for example, as articulated in the recent task force uh, paper in JAMA earlier this year, as a threat to life that develops because of acute organ dysfunction which in turn was due to a dysregulated host response to infection. Now, that uh, definition feels quite understandable when we take a classic case, such as uh, an incident of a child presenting with meningococcal septicemia who ends up in the ICU on the ventilator, and we can see that they're infected and that they've mounted a incredible host response that is injurious to their own tissues with acute organ dysfunction and a threat to life. The problem is when we try to convert that definition to be useful for epidemiologists for counting cases, we begin to run into some trouble. So, for example, if we go to the beginning and we think about infection, uh, right off the bat, whatever measures we're going to use to require for the proof that someone is infected, first of all, the measures may not actually be done. The measures may not be measured. For those measures that are measured, they may not be on a they may be on a continuum, and yet we need to divide them into infected yes versus infected no. When we think about the second piece, the dysregulated host response, that's well justified by our understanding from basic science about the nature of the way in which, for example, immune cells can disturb or destroy local tissues and so forth, but we don't actually have any clear mechanism to determine clinically when a host response is dysregulated or not, and so it largely stays in the eye of the beholder. 
when we think about acute organ dysfunction, we have the same problem as infection, that the measures for acute organ dysfunction have to be measured. If you didn't send the blood test, there's no measure. And furthermore, many of those measures may be on a continuum. And so for both infection and for acute organ dysfunction, the two essential components for sepsis, we have two problems. The first is, how do you count sepsis when no one's measuring sepsis? This is akin to if the tree falls in the forest and there's no one there, do you hear it fall? And the answer is, of course you hear it fall. You just didn't know it fell. And so clearly there are people who are getting sepsis, but if they don't turn up in an ICU or a hospital where we measure it, we don't count them. The second problem is this problem of a continuum. So for example, here, on, uh, for example, if you take a given value that can range from a low level on the left to a high level on the right, and you think about the distribution of patients, you'd like to think that lots of patients uh, who are normal would have low values, and then the disease patients, for example, might all have high values, and there's no one with indeterminate values. And so if it was something like blood cultures, you could say this is quite nice because blood cultures are either positive or negative, and they're not sort of semi-positive. Or if you defined respiratory failure as requiring intubation, you could say, I like this because people aren't partially intubated. They're either intubated or not. But unfortunately, that's not the reality for many of our measures. So for example, the white count, which would be a useful measure of infection, is on a continuum. And if we set the upper bound of normal as, say, 10,000, it's not true that all the healthy people have values of 5,000 and all the infected and septic people have values of 50,000. Lots of people have values of 9, 10, 11, or 12. And that would be true whether they're septic or infected or not. Similarly for serum creatinine, where's the cut point that clearly divides the world into people with perfectly normal kidney function versus abnormal, and it's not so clear. Furthermore, sepsis is on two axes. We have the problem of both infection and organ dysfunction. And so ideally, we'd want a situation where there are like four islands, an island of people who are healthy, an island of people who have uncomplicated infection with no organ dysfunction, an island of people who have organ dysfunction but no sign of infection, and then an island of people who have organ dysfunction due to the infection. That would be the septic patients. And each island would be separated by clear blue water. But that's not what we have. We have one big mushy island with all the uh, all these different syndromes rolling together with smooshy border zones. Uh, no easy division between them. We go back to our uh, conceptual definition. The next thing is, regardless of how we've done all of this, it has to pose a threat to life. And at this point, critics could equally say, for the same septic challenge, the threat to life may not pose a constant, may not be of a constant magnitude. So, for example, for the same septic insult, if you're in an ICU, the threat to life may be far lower than if you're in an austere setting. Similarly, if you're a young, healthy teenager, the same septic insult may pose a minimum threat to life, but if you're old with underlying disease, it could be fatal. Finally, all of these things have to be linked in a causal pathway. Our conceptual definition is not just that you have organ dysfunction and infection, but that the infection causes the dysregulated host response, which causes the acute organ dysfunction and so on. 
And our clinical criteria don't include any way that allows us to prove the causal pathway. So in practice, what happens is that we tend to decide if infection is present. We decide if there's new onset organ dysfunction. For example, the sepsis-3 criteria said the uh, observation of two new sofa points. And then we decide or assume that the sofa points are somehow due to this dysregulated host response to infection and then say, if all the above is true, then the patient is septic, and if not, then they're not septic. Okay, so it's not perfect, but that's what we try to do. When we apply that, who gets sepsis? And then we run into the problem of, in the past, if there was absolutely no ability to treat anyone, no antibiotics, no fluids, we'd just be observing the biology of sepsis. Like um, I have included here a picture from uh, the 19th century of a gentleman with sepsis, and you can see that he's not doing too well and there's nothing to be done. And you just observe the disease in its natural state. But in fact, what happens today is that there's a lot of treatment provided for patients, but not for everyone. So there are patients in ICU settings who are on ventilators and getting dialysis support, but then there are also patients who are in much more austere settings who are also getting sepsis, but getting very different treatment, if any treatment at all. So as an epidemiologist, if you start by going to a place where you think the care might be consistent, for example, in the United States, and then you apply a constant or reliable way of measuring sepsis. It may not be valid, but it's reliable in that it's done consistently. Then you can count, for example, that there are several hundred thousand cases in the United States, and you can immediately see things like the presence of infection plus organ, acute organ dysfunction happens far more commonly in the very elderly and the very young. If you then take those data and try to extrapolate to the rest of the world, then as Gordon Rubenfeld and colleagues did a few years ago, you can end up estimating there are between 15 and 19 million cases of severe sepsis per year. But that paper, uh, uh, interestingly noted, 80% 80 of the cases are probably from coming from low- and middle-income countries, which by no shadow of the imagination look anything like the United States. And so in the accompanying editorial, Tim Baker correctly pointed out, what about critical care and sepsis in these developing countries where patients may not be getting ICU care and may be so-called dying in the dark? So recently, just earlier this year, we and colleagues did an updated um, analysis of the global instance where we tried to search for all the available data and ended up using all the available incidence data and came up with an estimate that's very similar to the prior estimate from Neil Adhikari and Gordon Rubenfeld of about 19 million cases per year. But we also found that all the data were coming from high-income countries. Furthermore, when you look in those high-income countries, they don't produce the same numbers either. Their population rates vary tenfold. Interestingly, though, the number of cases in their ICUs are almost identical. So what's going on here? What's going on here is that there's variation in the ICU bed supply across high-income countries, and it's about a tenfold variation, and that drives a tenfold variation in the population. The number of cases you measure is proportional to the number of cases you treat. You're not truly measuring all the disease, only all of the treated disease. And that's a 
even bigger problem when we go back to this dying in the dark phenomenon, because if although there's a tenfold variation among high-income countries, when we look worldwide, there's a hundredfold variation in access to acute care hospitals and modern ICU facilities. Furthermore, if we go back to a place like the United States where we think things are consistent and access is consistent, even there we find that groups such as minorities or black populations and the poor, in fact, even though um, everyone ought to have the same access, they appear to have the highest rates of sepsis. And so that is quite worrying because then they are the patients who are likely to be disproportionately living in low-income countries. So the places where we don't measure don't just have the same rates of sepsis. They may actually have higher rates of sepsis. So in conclusion, when we think about uh, counting sepsis, we can start out with what I think is a pretty strong conceptual definition, but it's hard to operationalize. It's hard to operationalize because the measures must be measured, and then the measures that we use, we feel like we must dichotomize them. Now, nonetheless, when we try to apply those measures with the caveats I've described, we, ended up, we end up thinking there are about 20 million cases per year globally. Um, even when we measure consistently, for example, within the United States, though, we see that there's a higher risk among the poor and among minorities, which means that since we're only measuring uh, where we're caring, in places where we're not caring for sepsis, which is where there's more poor and more minorities, there may be even higher rates, which makes us increasingly worried about those dying in the dark. Steps forward towards better counting. Well, the recent sepsis-3 definitions are attractive in that they have the number three in them, which would suggest that there could be, in the future, new numbers. In other words, um, it's an attempt to have a standard definition to be used worldwide, but then a standard definition that will be updated in the future as the science advances. In terms of advancing the science for epidemiology, one first thing is to think about better ways of counting patients in places where it's hard to measure sepsis. And so, for example, instruments such as QSOFA that only rely on clinical signs might actually be quite useful for measuring sepsis in low- and middle-income settings. Alternatively, though, increasing access to lower-cost point-of-care laboratory tests may also be a mechanism for making it easier to capture sepsis. Um, in addition, we should maybe get away from feeling like we have to have a single number, which forces us to dichotomize those values. Rather, we should think about ranges of abnormality that would yield high and low estimates of sepsis rather than a single number, which realistically is probably a better way of quantifying how much certainty we have. And then finally, Many of my points here are not unique to sepsis. Uh, there are other issues about measurement and care for many other diseases at the global level. And there are groups, such as the World Health Organization or the Global Burden of Disease, who spend a lot of time trying to think about codifying and counting uh, these diseases and their global burden. It's important for us as caring about sepsis to think about reaching out to those groups. And that can begin, for example, with whatever standardized clinical measure we have, trying to then make sure that that's linked consistently to what I would say is sort of the uniform way for counting disease, which is through ICT-10 codes. And with that, I'll stop. Thank you very much for uh, this very nice talk, Derek. I think it was very, uh, very helpful. Uh, I have a question for you. 
what do you think is going to happen with uh, the measuring the the burden of sepsis in epidemiological studies now with the sepsis 3.0, and uh, mainly on uh, these studies that use administrative data? So I think that uh, administrative data, um, certainly in the United States, the administrative coding data, the description for the coding data does basically say sepsis is infection leading to acute organ dysfunction, which is still the essence of um, the sepsis-3 definitions. Um, in a way, the sepsis-3 definitions could help solidify and, and standardize the way in which people write down the presence of acute organ dysfunction and infection. They didn't tackle the definition of infection. That's been tackled previously by infectious disease groups and the CDC. But by trying to say, for example, that we're codifying acute organ dysfunction as a rise of two new sofa points, you could actually get more consistent reporting of organ dysfunction. The existing, um, the, the, the written or descriptive criteria for ICD-9 codes and ICD-10 codes for organ dysfunction have been more vague. And so in a way, um, the sepsis-3 definitions could actually be used to have a more standardized way of codifying clinically in the chart the organ dysfunction that would lead to then assigning an administrative code. But it won't happen on its own. Uh, groups responsible for coding would need to make the decision, for example, that we're going to say for acute organ dysfunction that we will rely on SOFA, for example. Yes, and another question is uh, what we can do to stimulate the low- and middle-income countries and uh, what's the proper way to uh, having them heading us in knowing the burden of sepsis in these settings? The, the challenge for low- and middle-income countries is a simultaneous challenge, uh, a combination of both um, counting the cases and caring for the cases. Um, and I really... Uh, uh, restricted my remarks to the challenges for counting the cases, but it would be um, blinkered of me uh, to not acknowledge that in many ways the first responsibility is to care for the cases. <laughs> so low and middle income countries would almost need in parallel to launch efforts to try to do better case counting, but also case caring. Um, so trying to think about mechanisms uh, to better document the patients coming through the hospitals that might be septic, but then also to care for those patients at the same time. Those are tightly related issues. Uh, my talk was very much on the counting, but I think the challenges in low- and middle-income countries are as definitely about caring as well as counting. Okay, so we thank you very much for such a nice contribution, Derek. Thank you very much. Let's go to the next speaker, which is our very good friend, Niran Jenkinson, better known as Pax. Pax is past, past president of the World Federation of Pediatric Clinical and Intensive Care Societies. He's also vice president of medical affairs in BC Children's Hospital and professor, professor of pediatric and surgery at the Department of Pediatrics at the University of British Columbia, Columbia in Vancouver. Uh, he is uh, well known by his tireless efforts and achievements in the sepsis field, mainly in low- and middle-income countries. Welcome, Pax. Good day, colleagues, and thank you very much for listening to this uh, 
segment on sepsis in children, a burden we shall not ignore. I chose the topic of burden we shall not ignore rather than simply outlining uh, the burden of sepsis because I think that we have a role to play and there are many issues that we can address that will uh, assist in decreasing this burden. Uh, in the next few minutes, I would like to discuss uh, some issues uh, uh, pertaining to sepsis in children, uh, why is it important, understanding context, the need for resilient health systems, uh, leverage a broader, a broader conceptual framework, and provide some concluding remarks. Now, sepsis is very important in children because the major killers in the world, which includes diarrheal disease, pneumonia, malaria, and bacterial sepsis, uh, they all lead to uh, multi-organ dysfunction and death. And in any child who suffers an infection, be it a, a viral, bacterial, um, or mixed infections, and die, are dying from sepsis. Now, sepsis is very common in children, and while we do not have um, a very good uh, uh, figures concerning the number of deaths, um, it is well recognized that uh, infections in children, especially those under five, is one of the major killers in the world. And indeed, when one looks at the global years of life lost by cause, infectious diseases are systematically stealing human resources. And many of the infectious diseases are more predominantly in children. So there's a high burden of sepsis in children. However, to put this uh, in, um, uh, burden of sepsis uh, in its proper perspective, we have to understand context. And uh, the world has moved to uh, urbanization over the last uh, decade such that many of uh, uh, the populations are now living in large townships and slums um, uh, areas in the world. And in these uh, very densely packed populations, sepsis and infections are more likely to spread. The data is even more sobering when, looks, when one looks at uh, the United Nations uh, population of the largest cities in 2014 and realize that many cities uh, now have over 20 million uh, uh, inhabitants. And by the time 2030, we may have mega cities with over 30 million in many parts of the world. In addition, uh, there are other factors that are playing into context now with the greatest migration wave since the end of World War II across Europe uh, with the refugees and many of these uh, situations, tropical diseases that can lead to sepsis are uh, being uh, now described in areas where they have not been seen before and in areas in which uh, mostly children are affected. Moreover, uh, the climate changes that we are seeing with global warming are leading to disease outbreaks in areas in which they have not been seen before. So, for instance, uh, the topical disease at the present time, Zika, has now recently, within the last few weeks, been seen in Florida. And with the, uh, the tropical storm in Florida, it is expected that this may spread even further. And hence, we need uh, uh, new advocacy and child programs to really recognize the burden and address this burden. Indeed, when we look at newly emerging and re-emerging diseases, this slide that shows uh, the uh, 
diseases across the world uh, shows that um, Zika is not present, and this was only uh, shown two years ago, and hence we are having more and more diseases across the world. At the same time, commercial air travel, global trade, urbanization, untracked population growth, and climate change makes the burden of sepsis a lot higher, and as I said, uh, more so in children. This slide from worldmapper.org, uh, the landmass represents certain uh, uh, variables, and one can see that wealth is concentrated in North America, Europe, and in Japan, whereas uh, Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, there's a, a smaller uh, amount of resources. At the same time, when we look at under five deaths worldwide, the majority of deaths in children are concentrated in Sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia, and hence there is a reciprocal uh, distribution between wealth and death to the extent that things are getting worse for children, in that children in low-income countries are now nearly 18 times more likely to die before the age of five years versus in high-income countries, whereas in 1990, they were 14 times. To take care of the large burden, we need resilient health systems. And a good example of lack of resilience was shown during the Ebola epidemic, uh, where death was uh, predominant among uh, the uh, extremes of age uh, with uh, um, deaths among children and the elderly. Ebola killed more people who never actually contracted the disease, for instance, those with trauma or malaria. It decimated local health workers. It depleted blood blank and essential supplies. Uh, it uh, reduced the healthcare system to dangerous levels. And more importantly, it uh, caused individuals to to lose faith in the healthcare system. Indeed, uh, Dr. Margaret Chan of the WHO summarized it very succinctly when she said that the devastation of Ebola disease in Africa can be answered in a single word, poverty. And this shows the lack of a resilient system. So to combat sepsis, um, we need to look at prevention measures, hygiene, sanitation, nutrition, and vaccines, etc. We need to treat with innovations closer to home because many um, patients do not have the resources to go to higher level. We need to have early recognition, transport, and antimicrobial and address post-discharge mortality. Indeed, in children, innovative critical care addressing infectious disease and sepsis by provision of low-cost antibiotics and tests, for, and tests to uh, community health workers and day clinics have reduced neonatal mortality and reduced drug overdose and increased early treatment for pneumonia and malaria in several parts of the world, including Pakistan, Zambia, uh, Ghana, Vietnam, Egypt, ba and Bangladesh, among others. And um, better uh, skills and systems uh, improvement have led to better seeking of care. One of the issues we know is uh, that uh, pneumonia is the number one killer in the world, and provision of oxygen and CPAP, which are very simple measures, may save 35% of lives. Yet in many parts of the world, oxygen is not available, and there are some innovations that are spawned by desperation. 
Post-discharge mortality in children is a major problem, and in many parts of the world, including North America, where a study from Washington State has shown, as well as Guinea-Bissau, Kenya, Malawi, uh, Uganda, and Tanzania, showed that uh, post-discharge mortality for sepsis is as high, uh, and in some cases higher than uh, uh, during uh, the acute episode. And in many cases, death occurs within the first few weeks to months, such that uh, there are opportunities for intervention. So to tackle sepsis in children, as I said, it's, we should not ignore it. We need to leverage a broader con conceptual framework uh, to, to understand sepsis in children. And uh, I would suggest we start with the uh, new sustainable developmental goals, which are just replace the Millennium Developmental Goals. While goal number three, good health and well-being, uh, addresses health uh, uh, in, in, uh, in particular, the other goals, for instance, number one, no poverty, zero hunger, quality education, gender equality, and clean water and sanitation, as well as others, reducing inequities, all uh, are, uh, upstream factors that would lead to better health and, in fact, needs to be addressed to decrease the burden of sepsis. Those uh, sustainable de developmental goals that pertain directly to sepsis are reducing global maternal mortality to less than 30 per 100,000 live births, ending of preventable deaths uh, by reducing neonatal mortality to less than 12 per 1,000 live births, and under 5 mortality to uh, less than 25 per 1,000 live births, ending uh, epidemic of communicable diseases and achieving universal health, including safe, affordable healthcare and medications and vaccines for all, all pertain to sepsis. And if we uh, address these goals, uh, it will be uh, to the great benefit of children. And as I said, it is, um, um, uh, will result in fruitful uh, outcomes uh, such as sepsis, sepsis in children has not been ignored. Indeed, we have to think of uh, the global issues, and uh, Laurie Garrett in her book, Betrayal of Trust, pointed out to the fact that to prevent the pandemics and, uh, that lead to sepsis that we envision, we need involvement of pharmaceutical companies, laboratory, government, and health forces worldwide. We need to marshal all these resources and not only the fruits of uh, scientific labor and uh, clinicians, but politicians, sociologists, economists, and even the elements of religion and philosophy and psychology. And finally, a few concluding remarks uh, and reflection on sepsis. One might ask, uh, why is this important and why does sepsis in children matter? I trust I have been able to uh, point out to you that it is a tremendous burden uh, to achieve the sustainable developmental goals, we need to address sepsis in children. Post-discharge mortality is very high. It affects children mostly in disadvantaged population, but also we are not immune from it regardless of where we live with uh, the issues of uh, environment, climate change, uh, travel, etc. Um, indeed, I consider it a moral issue, and it was summarized very nicely by William Sawyer, President 
um, of the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene in 1944 when he said no country can live to itself in disease prevention. A failure of one is a failure of all. And in 1997, Richard Garrett, in his presidential address to the very same society, stated that the solution to these children's problems, that is, children's in tropical countries, are the solution to our problem. One of the things I am sure how they and the disadvantage around the world here is what will clearly determine the destiny of us all. So I would like to thank you very much for listening and leave you with those words. And uh, I look forward over the next... Uh, uh, in, the, in the near future, continuing our fight together to decrease the burden of sepsis in children, um, and hence we can truly say it is not going to be ignored. Thank you. This uh, was really a very nice uh, a talk from Tex. We thank him very much. Uh, we're going to proceed to our next speaker, which is Zulfika Tuta. Uh, he is from Paxton. Uh, he went to United Kingdom, Stockholm, uh, and Edinburgh for his uh, medical uh, studies. And he is now currently uh, the president-elect for the Federation of the Asian and Ocean Perinatal Society and the president of the Common Health Association for Pediatrics, Gastroenterology, and Nutrition. He also currently holds the chair of the Health Science Group of the Biotechnology Commission. He's a member of the Advisory Committee for Health Research of the WHU uh, Regional Office at the, with the Mediterranean, and he's chairman of the Research Ethics Committee of the Government of Pakistan. Dr. Buta, we're going to tell us uh, about uh, the threats that exposed to maternal and newborn health. Welcome, Buta. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity to speak to you today. Uh, I am going to give you a snapshot in the next 10, 12 minutes or so of where does maternal and newborn sepsis sit in the global equation, uh, what do we know about risk factors in epidemiology, some emerging challenges, and what can be done. So if we start with a quick look at the Millennium Development Goals that have just finished uh, and were largely targeted at addressing some major global priorities, and as text mentioned just before my talk, have now been replaced by the Sustainable Development Goals. The Millennium Goals had two major goals related to health that everyone focused on. First is Goal 4 of reducing child mortality by two-thirds by the year 2015 and maternal mortality by three-quarters by the year 2015. By and large, the world has made tremendous progress, and in maternal mortality, we were able to achieve reductions of close to around 45% uh, from 1990 estimates. And this graphic that you see from some work that will appear very soon in the Lancet looks at close to around 270,000 maternal deaths in the year 2015 as we speak. And the geographies where these are clustered, as may be seen on this uh, uh, chart, is mostly sub-Saharan Africa, and South Asia, with some countries having mortality rates in excess of 500 per 100,000 births. Uh, on child mortality, as uh, may be evident, we have seen a fair amount of reduction from an estimated 12.7 uh, million child deaths under five every year, uh, and in comparison to the global target of 4.2 million uh, child deaths by 2015, 
we've managed to reduce it down to 5.9. This is one of the fastest rates of decline of child mortality in global history. And if you were to take population uh, increase or uh, increment into account, then you will find that maybe potentially overall we might have achieved Millennium Goal 4. But we believe that this is a glass half full. So yes, child mortality has gone down by 50%, but if you look at the global distribution of annual rates of decline, you'll find that in many countries, while there has been progress in reducing child mortality, such as in Southeast Asia, China, Brazil, parts of uh, Latin America, and some countries of, uh, of Middle East, uh, overall progress has varied. And in some countries, notably in sub-Saharan Africa and parts of South Asia, progress has been less than optimal, and much more needs to be done. One big recognition in, in, uh, in this sense of where things have not gone well is in the relationship of newborn mortality and postnatal mortality. So if you look at newborn reduction in deaths, the average rate of reduction has been much lower than that of postnatal under five mortality. And, and in order to address this issue, one would have to focus a lot more on reducing newborn deaths. Now, to do this, uh, one has to have a reasonable idea what the current envelope for newborn mortality is worldwide. So if you look at the current envelope for newborn deaths, which as I alluded to, now account for about 45% of all under five deaths, of the various things that kill newborn infants, prematurity, and intrapartum-related events stand out, and they uh, are responsible for close to around a quarter of all under five deaths. But you also have things which are eminently preventable and treatable. Uh, severe neonatal infections called sepsis, newborn pneumonia, which is very difficult to distinguish at times from sepsis and disorders of prematurity, and something that we are truly seeing disappearing worldwide, which is neonatal tetanus. Now, the burden of neonatal infections or sepsis varies by geography. So if you look at countries where the burden of neonatal mortality is very high, the ones that in this graph are seen as countries with neonatal mortality rates in excess of 30 per thousand live births, uh, not only are proportion of serious infections higher, uh, and also the overlap between prematurity and infections, but we also see, importantly, that the risk of neonatal death, of dying because of neonatal infections, is some 30-folds higher in some of these high-burden countries compared to low-burden countries. And that's because of standards of care being very different and, and, and quality of care in not being available to a large proportion of these newborns who are at risk of both developing infections and dying from infections. Now, uh, the next graphic attempts to show the interrelationships between newborn causes of death and maternal morbidities. And if you look at maternal morbidities, a large proportion of these maternal morbidities relate to things that kill mothers, but there are also sepsis and infections and risk factor for infections that are related to newborn problems. So I want to spend a minute uh, on also looking at risk factors for development of newborn infections, because one has to keep these in mind, particularly in low and middle income countries where they may or may not relate to the kind of things that we see in high income settings of a lot of these infections being either related to vertically transferred maternal infections or to hospital acquired infections in settings of healthcare service delivery. 
So I want to illustrate that why a simple review or an analysis of risk factors that we undertook in Pakistan by looking at case series and risk factor evaluation from published data from six centers over a period of time. And when we reviewed this, you can see some of the major risk factors appearing here, being born at home in contaminated environments, uh, instrumental and invasive deliveries in some settings, uh, maternal infection and premature rupture of membranes being predominant in some settings with case series, uh, the overlap between conditions in the newborn that may predispose to infections, uh, uh, especially prematurity and being born small for gestational age. And you will importantly also see in at least one series the relationship between not being able to breastfeed or hence provide protection to these babies. Not only are these risk factors different between centers, but as I mentioned, quality of care has outcomes, case fatality rates differ quite strongly between uh, uh, various centers also. And this graphic very clearly illustrates what can be done by improvements in quality of care and institution of appropriate treatment of which antimicrobial therapy is only one part. So over a period of uh, some 25 years, as you can see in these case series, case fatality rates for neonatal sepsis in various centers in Pakistan reduced from what was around 60% to less than 20%, and 20% still is very high. And with good quality care, even with serious bacterial infections in newborn infants, we believe that case fatality rates can be reduced to less than 10% uh, in most instances. I want to turn to one major global risk that we are beginning to see, and that relates to the emerging issue of antimicrobial resistance in various parts of the world. We have some data coming out very soon in the Lancet on what has happened in India in relation to antimicrobial resistance and, uh, and uh, risk of adverse outcome. But I wanted to show you some data again from a prospective study uh, that we've got coming out in the literature very soon where we not only tracked the most common etiologies of newborn infections but also their outcomes. And I'll show that with some two illustrative examples. So the first is what has happened with Klebsiella infections in newborn infants. And these are all blood culture proven cases from the Aga Khan University newborn services uh, between 1990 and 2015 for all inborn babies. So these do not include those that were referred from outside or could have had nosocomial or hospital-acquired infections. This is purely an inborn population where the proportion of risk factors uh, do not include many, many other confounders such as acquisition of infections from, uh, from other hospitals. So as you can see very clearly here that if you take multidrug resistance, the red band as an example, the growth of multidrug resistant infections in Klebsiella uh, pathogens has been quite phenomenal. And currently, as we speak, in the last five, four or five years, uh, these infections have accounted for close to uh, around 50% or thereabouts of all culture-proven Klebsiella infections, with another significant proportion being cephalosporin-resistant. Re uh, and if you look at just pure sensitivity, sensitive organisms to Klebsiella that respond to first-line treatment, you're looking at a very small minority now. But Klebsiella is a rare pathogen. So what about other common pathogens 
uh, that may have been encountered in this uh, particular population. And I give you one more example of Escherichia coli infections, E. coli in newborns. And here you see maybe not as startling a picture, but a comparable picture with the preponderance of uh, cephalosporin resistance in this organism and also multi-drug resistance being established in between 10 to 15 percent of these isolates over the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, uh, this morning I received a, a, a note from somebody talking about how gentamicin or aminoglycoside resistance in E. coli may have actually gone down. I don't think that's the case universally in South Asia. And this example tells you very clearly how much of a risk and a problem that poses to newborn care in our health facility settings. Does this matter? Does this matter to outcomes? The next slide tells you absolutely. So here are a range of pathogens uh, in this analysis where we have looked at culture-proven infections and outcomes in terms of those who died before they were discharged. And we're not even looking at long-term survival. And this is simple case fatality rates. And all of a sudden, for drug-resistant infections, you're looking at case fatality rates on an average of about 30%. And if you look at odds of dying with a drug-resistant infection compared to sensitive infections, those odds vary from between 3 to 15 folds higher for drug-resistant infections. So there is a big challenge with neonatal infections that no antibiotic therapy is going to be t able to tackle. And although there are these moves to look at simplified antibiotic regimen in primary care settings, I certainly feel very strongly uh, 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 from the data that we have that we have to focus a lot of our attention on preventive strategies. So in the last few minutes, I just want to underscore what can be done. And a lot can be done. If you look at the repertoire of effective interventions for mothers and newborns, beginning with pregnancy, pre-pregnancy perhaps, antenatal period and childbirth and neonatal period, uh, of the range of interventions which are available to us, which are evidence-based, highlighted in red are the interventions that can make a huge amount of difference to reduction in the risk of infections. You will see that these include in both prenatal counseling and, and during childbirth and immediate postnatal period and beyond, a major emphasis on care of preterm infants and institution and initiation of breastfeeding. Now, breastfeeding uh, is quite a simple, straightforward intervention, but very few people realize that within breastfeeding, the immediacy and the importance of early initiation of breastfeeding could be the difference between life and death in many high-contaminated settings. These are data from work by Karen Edmonds and Betty Kirkwood from, uh, from Ghana, where they evaluated pretty remarkably what was the difference in the risks of neonatal mortality according to the time of initiation of breastfeeding, taking reverse causality into account. And you see very clearly if breastfeeding was initiated after 48 to 72 hours, it was associated with a three to four falls uh, higher risk of dying of, uh, of various complications and problems of which infections was a major one. Another big intervention that we believe is not only important to newborn survival, but also extremely important to uh, morbidity reduction and improvements in developmental outcomes is early skin-to-skin -skin care. And not only for preterm babies is this important in reducing risks of hypothermia, it is a clearly impressive and uh, an effective strategy to reduce uh, the risks of lactation failure. 
and breastfeeding promotion now very importantly includes early initiation as well as uh, support for mothers and babies in the postnatal period. So we are now spending a lot of our time in looking at scaling up of, of what used to be called kangaroo mother care, uh, but it's now called skin-to-skin -skin care in various geographies. So let me conclude, uh, ladies and gentlemen, by making a few points in relation to the global challenge of maternal and newborn infections, and particularly serious infections. The first is that this is hugely important within health systems, especially in low- and middle-income countries, because not only is this a killer, but it also has huge impact on morbidity and is accounting presently for a fairly large chunk of, uh, uh, of newborn uh, mortality globally. We believe that the growing burden of gram-negative infections in the newborn period, frequently multidrug-resistant infections, places an enormous burden on health systems and is associated with significant excess mortality. We also believe that these have implications for the development of appropriate and evidence-based treatment regimen and preventive strategies. And because treatment, more often than not, is much more expensive, is much more delayed uh, than preventive strategies, then very rightly, I would like to put my money on the development of preventive strategies. What that means is that in the range of preventive strategies, not only is early detection of risk factors, but certainly preventive strategies that are almost universal and cornerstones of such uh, 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 regimen or packages, such as exclusive and early initiation of breastfeeding, administration of colostrum, these ought to be in place everywhere, and these ought to be scaled up. So a big challenge for us right now is implementation strategies for this. Early detection of maternal risks of uh, infection, early detection and reduction of risk factors in hospital settings, reduction of congestion uh, and, and uh, hand washing promotion, these can reduce the burden of these infections quite substantially. And lastly, there are now a range of preventive strategies that have been scaled up, such as the use of clean birth kits, such as the preventive cord care with chlorhexidine and preventive skin care with emollient therapy in, in, uh, in preterm babies that have enormous potential for reducing the burden of neonatal infections in community settings in low- and middle-income countries. So thank you so much for your attention. Um, I am greatly honored to be part of your fantastic panel and groups of speakers, and thank you for being part of this journey. Oh, uh, thank you very much, uh, Buta. That's, uh, that was a very uh, relevant talk. I think I have one question for you. Uh, it's uh, what's the place of the psychological management uh, in, this, in these cases? Well, I mean, I think support for mothers and uh, care providers in every setting of uh, maternal and newborn morbidity is extremely important. So certainly for babies, especially preterm babies who are very sick, providing adequate support to the family at large, to the mother in particular and the fathers, is extremely important, especially if you're dealing with serious infections where there may be risks of consequences. Uh, but I think what I would like to underscore in the context of, of maternal and newborn infections is that this is an eminently preventable problem. Well, while we probably cannot do much about preventing prematurity at this stage, or addressing the burden of asphyxia in those uh, instances where the risk factors are not apparent, we can actively eliminate, if we put our minds to it, 
the burden of serious bacterial infections in newborn infants uh, in a large proportion of low and middle income settings by giving attention to the few strategies for reducing risk factors that I just talked about. And if those in those reducing congestion, providing clean environments, appropriate antibiotic regimen, uh, preventive breastfeeding from very earlier on, and continued breastfeeding with exclusivity in the first six months, in ensuring that preterm babies are nursed with their mothers as much as possible, and that they have good, adequate skin care and cord care. These are things that can be done at very low cost, and they can make the difference between life and death. Oh, very good. And I, I have another comment uh, coming from our uh, the guy uh, from Sunburn that it's an uh, interest in research uh, in a problem the, on prevention of neonatal sepsis by using no, non-touch non techniques. Can you comment on this, or should I uh, send you this question uh, this yeah, later on? The, if the gentleman can send me a question as to what the person means by a non-touch technique, if I was to understand that uh, basically you don't want to handle babies without washing hands, uh, but once you have an infected baby, as I mentioned, providing skin-to-skin -skin care or kangaroo mother care, which is, you know, the optimal form and right form of, of contact is absolutely appropriate. So I think if the, gen if the questioner could elaborate on what he or she means by non-touch techniques, I'll be happy to answer the question. Okay, very good. Thank you very much, Buta. And I think that now we have to proceed to our next speaker, which is Dr. Jack Iwashina. He is the core director, the research core at the VA and Hubble Health Services Research and Development, and he's also associated professor of medicine at the University of Michigan and faculty associate of the Survey Research Center. Jack is uh, well known by all his work uh, in organization of ICU care and how it contributes to improve quality and efficiency of care mainly now in uh, sepsis survivors. So welcome, Jack. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, there's, I think everybody who's on should, should take a moment and imagine, if you could, what a global convention like this 10 years ago would have been. There's certainly no chance it would have started with nearly 15,000 registrations. Uh, and so it's such a privilege to be a part of this. So I've been asked to talk to you about what happens after people who survive. Now, Texas, of course, already suggested that there is a devastating impact uh, for many people, that we have to think about dependence of those who have sepsis, and what about the loss of a mother entirely from maternal death. Here we're going to talk a little bit about what happens to the ability of sepsis survivors to engage in their life, which so often involves providing care afterwards if they survive. Before I go on, I have to say that I'm speaking as a scientist who's been funded by the National Institutes of Health uh, and the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, but that this work does not necessarily represent the views of the U.S. government or the Department of Veteran Affairs. So the basic math that we have to start with is very clear, right? Um, there are more and more patients dying, uh, there are more and more patients getting severe sepsis, sepsis 3, septic shock, every year. And we're getting better and better at taking care of them. And if that's true, 
the math is unavoidable. More patients plus less death means much more survivors. And so it becomes very important that we think not just about short-term survival, but what are the long-term consequences for our patients? This is a relatively new question. Back in 2004, Gordon Bernard was interviewed. And at that time, Gordon Bernard was perhaps one of the five or 10 best clinical trialists in the entire world working in the ICU. And Gordon Bernard was asked a very simple question. He was asked, is there a residue in sepsis survivors who have had multi-organ failure or dysfunctions? And in 2004, Gordon Bernard answered with what was the state-of-the-art answer at that time. And the answer, he said, was most people return to normal or near-normal lives, even if they've had severe organ failures. Persistent problems are rare. Most surviving patients come back to being normal. In the 12 years since that interview, we've learned that the story is not so easy and not so simple. Instead, a series of careful investigations have shown ongoing effects of patients throughout their brains and bodies that compromise their ability to return to normal life. There's lovely work from Zudan Puduchari and where they looked at muscle biopsies among patients who were in the ICU. And they found very rapidly that muscles became disorganized, lost their cross-sectional area, and had profound weakness within just days of being in the ICU. We know the work from Wes Ely, who's going to be speaking after me, and Mona Hopkins and their colleagues looking at um, patients who were in the ICU for ARDS, so commonly caused by sepsis. They found uh, on sequential MRIs, people had massive atrophies of their brain. This was followed up by some lovely work in Germany where they looked at all survivors of the ICU and compared uh, in an MRI the volume of their hippocampus, and they were able to show marked declines in the volumes of the hippocampus of patients who survived sepsis relative to normal brains of other ICU survivors. So we have muscles and brains both taking a hit. And as you would expect, when the muscles and brains both have a problem, soon enough you develop physical problems. We looked at this in a large cohort study in the United States. And for those of you listening on the podcast, you won't be able to see the slides, but there's a there's a figure that I'm going to describe to you. On the left side of the figure are measurements of people who have not yet developed sepsis, but will go on to develop sepsis. They were enrolled in a prospective cohort. So every two years, we ask them how many activities of daily living and instrumental activities of daily living they had limitations on because of their health problems. And we divided people up into those who had no problems before severe sepsis, who had some problems before severe sepsis, or who had severe problems before severe sepsis. We then went through and asked, what happens to each of these groups? Let's start with the group who had no limitations in their activities of daily living or instrumental activities of daily living before sepsis. They'd been doing well for years. This wasn't just a fluke measurement error. For up to five years, they'd had no problems. Suddenly, the next time they were surveyed after sepsis, an average of a year later, they now had one and a half new ADL or IADL, IADL activities. Uh, limitations, where once where these people have been doing well for five years now and lasting for at least five years after sepsis, they had new disability. 
The same thing happened for patients who had a bit of disability. Before sepsis, they had an average about one and a half, two ADL limitations, enough to be an appreciable problem. But nonetheless, they were often doing quite well. After sepsis, on average, they gathered a new one and a half ADLs. And what you see is an acute disruption here. This wasn't how they were doing beforehand. This is how a sudden change that's associated with their sepsis hospitalization. Now, there's also a group of people who've been doing badly for the five years. They had increasing amounts of disability. And for them, after they had sepsis, there was also an increase in their disability, but no more than you'd expect. For some people, sepsis is part of a longer dying process. But for many people, indeed, even in this cohort of older, older Americans, the vast majority of people, sepsis is associated with new and enduring disability. And we wanted to ask the question of, well, but is it sepsis? Maybe, after all, one might say, it's just being in a hospital. I have many colleagues who are geriatricians, and they point out that just being in a hospital can be bad for you. So we compared the likelihood of developing new disability before, um, after sepsis to your likelihood of developing new disability if you were just hospitalized for another generic hospitalization, a hospitalization where you weren't in the ICU, where you weren't mechanically ventilated, where you didn't develop sepsis. And what we see is that consistently there was a much bigger increase in disability after sepsis than after other hospitalizations. It doesn't look like this was just sepsis, just hospitalization. It looks like there was something about sepsis. And so what we see is that these patients have a lot of trouble that goes on for years, that sepsis can result in an acute disruption in the course of people's lives. And most ambitiously, what we've been trying to understand in our group is how severe sepsis changes their lives, with the goal not merely of counting this, but of actually changing how it happens. In order to do so, you have to think about three different pieces. The first is you have to think about the patient as they were before they became ill. What were the problems they had beforehand? What were the resources they had? Then they develop an acute illness, which has an acute effect on them. And we need to understand and disentangle that physiology and the biochemistry there in ways that are incredibly interesting. But we also need to know that when that patient comes into the hospital, we stick them in a hospital bed. We do a lot of things that are intended to save their lives. And many of those are absolutely essential. But we need to also ask ourselves, are there things we're doing that contribute? Because these three things interact to cause an entire web of problems. And we don't understand all the intervening factors here, but we do know that at the end, after sepsis, it's quite common for people to be weak, to be cognitively impaired, to have other psychological problems, and to have new or exacerbated organ dysfunctions that last for years. And these translate into an increased mortality risk, an inability to return to their social roles, recurrent healthcare needs, and caregiving burdens. And so I think when we think about sepsis, this is perhaps the biggest change that's happened in the last 10 years. Yes, there's been the change from sepsis 2 to sepsis 3. Yes, we've learned more about early goal-directed therapy. But when we stop thinking of, we've stopped thinking of sepsis as an acute disease that is acutely life-threatening alone. And instead, we've learned that it's very often 
acutely life-altering even among those who survive it. And we're only now beginning to ask, why is it life-altering and what can we do to make it better? But as we think about it, it's important for us not to be overly pessimistic. Some lovely data was just published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine that looked at patients from a sample um, community dwelling folks and looked at them six months after the ICU. And what they found was a lot died. We expected that, 16%. They found, indeed, that almost a third of them, 32%, were alive and had increased disability. But they also found that half of people were alive and were able to recover their baseline function. We know that sepsis is not a death sentence anymore. We also know it is not a sentence it does not ineluctably sentence people to disability. We know there's variability, and we know we need to understand more how to make sure that so many more of our patients survive and survive well. There are many questions here, and far more than we can possibly go through just in a 12-minute talk. My email and uh, Twitter handles are on the slides, um, and uh, I'd be honored to continue the conversation either during the Q&A session or afterwards online. Thank you all for your interest in helping our patients with sepsis. Thank you, Flavia. Thank you, Jack. Uh, I have a question here that is not exactly in your field, but uh, you, maybe you can help. Uh, I have somebody from the United States that said that he, she has sepsis. She had sepsis in December after an neck surgery in 2015. And again, she had septic shock in April this year. And she's asking if uh, she, she should expect this to return again, and what can I expect for the future is uh, here a question for you. Thank you so much, and, and I, I appreciate Penny's question. Um, certainly any of us who have a web presence um, with in sepsis research tend to get an email like this every couple of weeks where people say, um, you know, I've had this horrifying event, and... My physicians seem to know so little about it. What does the future hold for me? The honest answer is we don't entirely know. There's some very exciting work going on to try to understand how often people develop recurrent sepsis. The answer is enough that it's probably worth future study, but not so much that it's, people are doomed to it. As for what we can do to prevent sepsis, there's frustratingly little data among adults about this. Um, do you probably end up relying on sort of air general recommendations for kind of good health and keeping oneself in good shape? I wish I had better answers. My, I think one of the hopes for the World Sepsis Congress is that perhaps this will stir people to be able to answer these questions so that sometime soon we can give Penny a better answer. Yeah, and I think that your question uh, in this final slide deserves uh, uh, another comment from you because, uh, you know, it will uh, take a while until you fully understand what determines this disability. And uh, during this time, Jack, what do you think that we can do to prevent it, to prevent you know, the disability or to find out who we're going to be, uh, who we're going to have disability after discharge? You know, I think... This is the realities of being a physician scientist as opposed to being a pure scientist. Um, Flavia, you and I both practice in a real world where just because we don't ha understand the mechanisms of things doesn't mean we can wait to deal with it until someone else can discover all the mechanisms. Um, my sense is right now is that prevention often involves good care. 
Uh, I think this is what Wes is going to talk about uh, next. And he's obviously taught us so much about um, awakening and breathing trials, low tidal volume ventilation, how to get people off ventilators. We also have every reason to believe that good in ICU care will help us moving forward, but we don't know for sure. What do I do practically? I try to provide great in ICU care. I try to wake them up. I try to get them moving. And then we try to increasingly experiment with peer support, ways that we can help our patients connect to other patients afterwards so that they can find ways to help themselves after sepsis. There's a much longer conversation there, but I'll try to be short. Uh, I also I do have then two new questions here for you that I, uh, if you can give us a quick answer. The first one is, what are the sequelae for families of patients with sepsis in the ICU? That's a great and important question. We know probably the most important is that there's an important spike in depression in the two years um, after sepsis among at least older caregivers. Um, there's a reason to think there's probably a substantial financial impact on uh, family members and caregivers that is inadequately understood. Um, and then there's substantial additional caregiving burden. Uh, these folks who are coming out with new activities of daily living, that means they can't get dressed or they can't walk where they once could. And so often it's families who we uh, depend on. So I think they have to do a lot of practical help. They're often financially devastated. And those combinations often add up to a lot of depression. The last question, Jack. Is there a way to use the current database, databases to quantify the post-sepsis phenomenon? It seems coding may not be helpful, is the comment from the Dennis. Um, you know, Dennis, that's a great point. Um, my, several of us, not just in my group and others, have spent a lot, a lot, of, a lot, of, a lot of time and time trying to find clear ways uh, to discover what it is we should be looking for. Um, some of the current databases do. The work I talked about today, for example, was all using uh, pre-existing databases. And so, uh, yes, but it's not easy. Okay, so thank you very much, Jack. In the interest of time, I think we need to proceed for our next speaker, uh, which is uh, Dr. Wesley Ali. Uh, he is a subspecialist in pulmonary and clinical care medicine who conducts a lot of patients-oriented healthcare research as the professor of medicine in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, Clinical Care Medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Uh, he's going to talk to us about the prevention of post-sepsis sequela. Hi, it's my pleasure to be here. And I really enjoyed the previous speaker's presentations. I will try to build on those and make complimentary comments for the audience. I'm going to address this topic of post-intensive care syndrome specific to the brain and this issue that, of the fact that Dr. Washington outlined so nicely that we have a tremendous public health problem after severe sepsis in that the patients have uh, an acquired cognitive dysfunction that is on par with an Alzheimer's disease or traumatic brain injury in terms of the cognitive deficits. I will try and make three points. One of them will be regarding the epidemiology and description of this problem with the brain. The second one will be ways that we have adapted our intensive care units to try and prevent this and the other sequelae that we are finding in the post-intensive care syndrome. 
And the third will be a look towards the future of how we might be able to specifically handle this brain dysfunction when it develops uh, for the patients. Now I need to figure out how to get to the next slide. I'm, I'm trying, oh, here we go. Um, patients write it to us all of the time with regard to their own sad stories after leaving intensive care. And this is one quote that I decided I would include here about somebody who wrote to us and just described a tremendous problem going back to work and doing the things that were always so easy for them before. We have an area on our website at icudelirium.org called Testimonials, which you can see the link to there, which has numerous of these testimonials for you to peruse and learn from and share with families and patients so that they won't feel so alone in their suffering here. This helps people to really realize that what they're going through while harrowing is something that is very, very common after severe sepsis. So we have shown in studies now going back well over a decade that delirium itself is an independent predictor of long-term problems. And what I mean by delirium here, if the audience can just think of confusion or uh, problems paying attention, they will know that if you're talking to a loved one in the ICU, that sometimes somebody cannot follow simple directions. Oftentimes, they are not even hallucinating or pointing out visual auditory uh, voices or seeing things in the room, but rather just cannot pay attention. And this is the most common form of delirium in the ICU. And we have shown that this is a predictor of death and it is also a predictor of long-term brain dysfunction. After we initially showed this in pilot studies, we went on to conduct large-scale NIH-sponsored, National Institute of Health-sponsored research, which defined a little bit better for the world what exactly was going on with the brain after the ICU. Our study was called the Brain ICU Study. We had well over 1,000 patients in the overall study in this particular portion of the study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, we had over 800 patients. And what we learned was that whether it was older patients, middle-aged, or even young patients in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, that the brain function measured at three months and 12 months after the ICU was way out of bounds of what would be predicted by age and education and depending upon the way that you looked at the cognitive function, um, it was a very consistent message that patients were actually scoring on average down around Alzheimer's disease or traumatic brain injury. And these were people who had no pre-existing issues that would have predicted that they would be uh, thinking like this. So even if we adjusted for people who did have some evidence of pre-existing dementia or cognitive impairment, the ICU experience itself, and most specifically, the, the duration of delirium that they had had in the ICU were the predictors of this long-term brain dysfunction. In fact, you can think of it as executive function or memory deficits. What I uh, have included in my talk today are data on executive dysfunction, and you can see a relationship between the duration of delirium and drops in the way that somebody's able to carry on tasks of organization like they might do at a computer or at a workstation. But we also found this with memory as well. Others around the world, uh, like 
the Walters Group and Arjen Schluter from the Netherlands have confirmed this in large investigations as well of over 1,000 patients where they have found, for example, that delirium was an independent predictor of doubling or tripling of mild and severe long-term brain dysfunction. And uh, it's an entirely different lecture and much more time to explain the, the depths of what we are learning about these studies, but I wanted to make sure the audience today knew that different people on different continents are finding similar findings about this long-term brain dysfunction after sepsis. Now I'm going to move into my second point, which is that you have to look for this problem in the ICU while somebody is septic and, and sick in order to find it because most delirium is invisible because it is what we call hypoactive or quiet delirium, and so people don't expect that the person is actually having a problem when they're just looking around the room minding their own business, but actually uh, they are in the majority of patients in the ICU on mechanical ventilation. And it is also true that of those people having this problem, that three out of four will be missed if it's not actively screened for. Now, some ICUs have said to us, well, why screen it if we don't know exactly how to treat it? And the truth is that the glass is definitely half full and not half empty here. We have got lots of things that we can do in the ICU to reduce the duration of delirium. And those include things that make a mnemonic we call the Dr. Dre, stands for disease remediation, drug removal, and environment. And so at the doctor part, disease remediation, when we find out that one of our patients does have delirium, we always try and think of the underlying diseases or even the newly acquired diseases, and sepsis is the number one on the list that leads to delirium in the ICU, but also diseases like CHF, COPD, and other types of problems. We then think about drugs that should be removed, so drug removal, and then also environment. In the drug removal area, we think mostly about potent psychoactive medications like benzodiazepines or other potent sedatives. And uh, on the environment area, we think about things like eyeglasses, hearing aids. Imagine how incredibly confusing it would be in the ICU and therefore deliriogenic, perhaps, to be able to, uh, to, to not be able to talk because you have a tube down your throat and then also have no ability to see things clearly or hear things clearly. So very disorienting. And we know from myriads of geriatric literature that those are major risk factors for delirium. I also want to now begin to go over a bundle of elements, six different elements, which we have found the literature has built for us. We have taken now hundreds of peer-reviewed manuscripts, and I'm going to be reviewing these in Berlin next week, actually very excited about being in Germany next week. Hopefully I will see Dr. Spies there. And we have found, after looking over these hundreds of, of peer-reviewed literature, including about 30 to 40 in the highest echelon clinical journals in the world, the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, and Lancet, that the literature itself has built for us a bundle, much like the airline industry uses, uh, to make sure that they check off things for us when we get on an airplane and the airplane doesn't crash. They have a checklist, a safety checklist. We have built this ICU liberation safety checklist called the ABCDEF bundle. We just for short call it the A2F bundle. And I would uh, just very quickly recite for you what these issues are. It's first A for assessing, preventing and managing pain. We always put pain at the top of our list of things we have to do for our suffering patients. B is both SATs and SBTs and what that means. 
spontaneous awakening trials and spontaneous breathing trials, SA and SB. Uh, these are turning off sedatives and analgesics when not required and turning off the ventilator to try and get patients off the ventilator sooner. We know from randomized controlled trials that if done aggressively, this can get people off ventilators up to four days and even out of ICUs and hospitals up to four days earlier. C is choice of sedation. This is just reminding us to pay attention to the specific drugs that we give. For example, some drugs are less deliriogenic than others. We have just a recent study um, out of China. We have one out of Australia and some out of Europe and then others out of the United States, all showing that avoidance of benzodiazepines and moving towards shorter-acting drugs, perhaps alpha-2 agonists or even antipsychotics, can be very helpful in terms of reduction of delirium, reduction of time on vent, and paying attention to nurses and being able to, for the patient to be able to pay attention and engage with family and nurses, which is one of our goals in ICU. The D is delirium, the E is early mobility, and the F is family. So assessing and managing pain, both SATs, SBTs, choice of drug, delirium assessment and prevention and management. I already told you about the Dr. Dre there. Uh, early mobility and the F for family engagement and empowerment. Now, these things are done in order to break this cycle that we adopted culturally over the 90s and early 2000s of a very heavy sedation, which would land people on the ventilator much too long. It's also the goal here to reduce delirium, improve patient outcomes, and reduce health care costs. All these things together are summarized quite nicely on, on two different websites you could go to to get more information. They are the icudelirium.org, so just one word there, icudelirium.org, and uh, the other one is iculiberation.org. These are two excellent websites with lots of information, so if you want to go read more about them, you can also get to me. Jack Washington gave you his email. Mine is readily available on the Internet through our icudelirium.org website. Now, let me close with giving you a, a look about the data behind this A to, a to F bundle and then a look to the future. So just very briefly, two investigations. This one, first one published by Michelle Ballas, was done in the western United States, one-and-a-half-year-long investigation, where after putting the A to E bundle, at that time the F family part had not been added, it was A to E, after putting the bundle in place, here are all the things that the Ballas study showed in their patients after a year and a half of study. They had three more days alive and off of mechanical ventilation. They had 10 to 20% less delirium. They had a 10 to 20% rise in early mobility and even a big-time reduction of uh, almost 8% reduction in the overall death rate in the ICU and in the hospital, which was significant, statistically significant. All these things were statistically significant. That study was a very nice first study to show us that the bundle itself worked after the individual pieces had been studied by themselves. Then once you put it together as a bundle, we saw improvements. But the most recent study, which is coming out in February of critical care medicine, is a study done by Marianne Daly, Marianne Barnes-Daly and colleagues out of the Sutter Health Hospitals in California, where over a 15-month experience and over 6,000 patients at seven different community hospitals. This is what was nice, was we took this then out of the Ivy Tower academic setting and put it into the community. We found in this study that for every 10% 
increase in the overall bundle compliance, we saw a 15% increase in survival and a 15% increase in the being alive and not delirious or comatose. And this 15% this increase per, per every 10% increase in compliance was after adjusting for the person's age, Apache 3 scores, and uh, mechanical ventilation. So this is the most robust data we have to date in the, in the out-of-study setting in a community hospital circumstance that this bundle, when put all together, these six, these six elements do, a, do something quite dramatic at the bedside in the real-world clinical setting. So just remember, as I'm, as I'm closing here, that we now have people awake and alert in the ICU. I'm actually showing a picture in my slide of a, of a, of a gentleman, a patient of mine, texting his wife while on the ventilator. He could not come off. He was waiting for a heart transplant. Wide awake, doing quite well on the ventilator. We have another patient sign-languaging his nurse. He is deaf and now can't speak because of the ET tube. And uh, thank goodness he's awake and alert, not delirious, and able to sign language and communicate with his nurse. All of this is part of our ability to get people to return back to their everyday tasks and, 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 uh, and the ability to go back to their previous life. We have actually studied this concept of return, and we're using cognitive rehab to get people's brains back. In an early pilot and now in subsequent data that we don't have published yet, but which we're finding very strikingly at, in our post-ICU and post-sepsis patients, that we can get brain back if we put them through rigorous brain exercises, and we're using computerized cognitive rehabilitation now to do that. So let me bring this to a close and see what kind of questions you might have. It's been my pleasure to be on here with you, and I thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of this extremely good Worldwide Sepsis Congress. Oh, thank you. It's up to us to thank you for this very nice presentation, Wes, and uh, this very nice paper that you said uh, on uh, compliance with the bundles and long-term outcomes is amazing. Congratulations. Uh, I have a question for you. It's, uh, would you suggest some kind of home facility care to, to any specific uh, particular group of uh, sepsis survivors? The way that we're picking this out, Dr. Spies, is that we are trying to identify patients who are the highest risk for this circumstance, and we're using three things. We're using uh, the, the presence of delirium during their hospital stay, the problem of being either on a ventilator or in shock. So uh, basically think brain, heart, or lung. If you have brain, heart, or lung dysfunction in the ICU, these are the things that make somebody much more likely to have ongoing brain dysfunction after the ICU, and I'll point out, I'm sure you've already realized in, in the brief moment that I presented that to you, that those happen to be the QSOFA criteria as well. So it turns out that the very definitions that we use to quickly define severity of illness in sepsis, the QSOFA criteria that came out with sepsis 3, are the same things that we're using to pick people because of known risk factors now, modeling and such, that are, are the predictors of the long-term brain dysfunction. So this, this goes very nicely hand-in-hand with what we're learning about sepsis and PICS. Yeah, and I have another question that is uh, being more vulnerable to developing infections and different kinds of neuropathy uh, are also sequela after sepsis. Can you say something more about this? No, no doubt that these, uh, the, the, the vulnerabilities that somebody acquires both neck up and neck down in, during sepsis, which are the cognitive impairment and then the ICU-acquired weakness, uh, mainly the motor and sensory deficits, then also predispose you to a recurrent problem because now you have 
an inability to follow directions at home. You don't take your medicines the way you should. You don't mobilize the way that you would have before to recover. So there is, a, I think, a vicious cycle where the people with the most severe PICs are also the people who are the highest risk to develop severe sepsis again. And the last question was, uh, is uh, about the family participation in this process. And Eduardo wants to know if there is any research comparing the presence of the family and the long-term outcomes. Uh, there, there are good data on this, actually. Uh, we, we need more, but there are data accruing, and I would direct the, the Eduardo to Ellie Azulay's work, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, Azulay. His first initial is E, as in Edward, but it's L-E, E-L-I-E. His work out of France, and that partnered with Randy Curtis, have got the best data on the involvement of family in the ICU. We have New England Journal data and lots of other critical care journal data to show that incorporating family has all sorts of downstream benefits in the ICU, and that is exactly why we added the F to the A to E bundle and made it the A to F bundle. And now we have incorporated family into numerous different facets of the ICU liberation program, which is the, the multi-hospital program around the United States by the Society of Critical Care Medicine called ICU Liberation that you can read about at iculiberation.org. Perfect. Uh, that was very nice from you, and thank you very much for your participation. Uh, I want to, to uh, introduce our next speaker and our last speaker for this whole First World Texas Congress, which is Ann Parker. Ann is instructor in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She is currently studying clinical, uh, clinical investigation in, uh, in Johns Hopkins uh, uh, about uh, post-intensive care syndrome, and this is exactly what she's going to tell us about. Hi, Ann. Welcome. Hi, thanks so much. It's such an honor to be included in the, in the speaker panel. Um, so I'll keep this fairly brief. I know um, we might be a little bit over time, and, and I'm the last speaker, but um, this is uh, quite an honor, so thank you. Um, so I'll be talking today about ICU-related post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. So, and this has been covered previously, but just to summarize, as the population ages, more and more people are requiring critical care at some point during their lifetime. And at the same time, we've gotten better at taking care of people who are critically ill, such as people with sepsis. And so mortality for these folks is decreasing. And so we have this increasing pool of ICU survivors who are developing a number of long-term sequelae. Uh, just as Dr. Ely mentioned in his talk, we refer to this as the post-intensive care syndrome. And this constellation of symptoms includes impairments in mental health, cognitive impairments, as well as physical impairments. And we know that these issues can last for more than five years after people with sepsis and other critical illness leave the ICU, and that these issues are associated with a worse quality of life. And so I'll be focusing on specifically post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. So I think just to summarize what PTSD is and how we actually diagnose PTSD and look at PTSD symptoms, if we look at the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the fifth edition, we see that in order for a person to be diagnosed with PTSD, they have to experience a severe life stress. So this needs to be an actual or threatened death or serious injury. And this has to be associated with an intense fear, 
as well as chronic symptoms that I'll get more into in just a moment. And these symptoms need to last for over a month, and they need to cause significant stress or impairment in daily functioning. So these symptoms include symptoms of intrusion, which might be intrusive thoughts or recollections, bad dreams, flashbacks to the event, as well as avoidance of situations or themes that remind the individual of the event, as well as negative alterations in cognition and mood, so uh, depressive symptoms, as well as increased arousal, so difficulty sleeping, having trouble concentrating. And so in order to summarize the prevalence and the risk factors for developing PTSD symptoms in uh, folks with critical illness, such as sepsis, we did a meta-analysis, a systematic review and meta-analysis to answer this question. And so we looked at PTSD studies in ICU survivors, and these included individuals with sepsis. So we looked at 40 studies on 36 unique cohorts of patients. So the total number of patients in the systematic review was over 4,000. These studies looked at patients who had been discharged from the ICU anywhere from one month ago to the three years. And we excluded studies that focused just on very specific patient populations. We wanted to get a sense for the PTSD symptom prevalence and risk factors for all comers to the ICU. Notably, 12 of the 40 studies that we looked at excluded patients that had a history of pre-existing psychopathology. So they excluded patients who had pre-existing anxiety or depression. And the remainder of the studies did not have that criteria. So we performed a meta-analysis to look at the pooled prevalence of PTSD symptoms among ICU survivors. We decided to use the studies uh, with the most commonly implemented instrument for assessing PTSD symptoms. And so this happened to be the impact of event scale. And this was chosen mostly because of the number of studies that we would need for the meta-analysis and this being the most common instrument used. And one of the most common cutoff scores used among these studies was a 35, a score of 35 on the impact of event scale. Notably, there were a number of different measures used to assess PTSD symptoms in each of these studies. And so this was just one of the instruments used. So if we looked at studies that included follow-up from one to six months after the ICU, we found six studies looking at this time point and using the IES or impact of event scale. And the total number of patients among these studies was 450. And what we found was that one in four patients develop substantial PTSD symptoms during this time period following their ICU stay. If we looked at the seven to 12 month time period, we saw that almost one in five patients up to a year out, up to a year after discharge from the ICU had substantial PTSD symptoms. If we looked at a couple of studies that included specifically a clinician diagnosis of PTSD, so this was a clinician interview to diagnose PTSD symptoms, the range was 10 to 32% prevalence. So the take-home message here is that PTSD symptoms are remarkably common with almost one in five patients having substantial PTSD symptoms that persist to a year after ICU discharge. And so looking at some of the risk factors for PTSD symptoms, we looked at some of the risk factors that patients may have had coming into the ICU, so they're pre-existing risk factors. 
And one of those appears to be pre-existing psychopathology. So again, pre-existing anxiety, depression. We saw that in five of nine studies where there was a positive association with having had more anxiety or depression before the ICU and then subsequently developing new PTSD symptoms upon leaving the ICU. Some of the risk factors associated with the ICU stay itself, uh, there was a possible association with benzodiazepine exposure, so medications like Ativan, Versed, Midazolam. And then another very consistent risk factor was this concept of early post-ICU memories of frightening ICU experiences. And so some of these memories, for example, were things like seeing blood pouring down the walls, thinking that a patient, uh, thinking that they were being stabbed or assaulted when in fact maybe they were having a chest tube placed, feeling that they were being smothered when in fact they had an endotracheal tube in to be on a breathing machine, um, thinking that the nurses and the doctors were teaming up against them in some way. And so these were very distressing memories for the patients, and this was a theme that came up across many studies and seemed to have a consistent positive association with developing PTSD symptoms. Notably, and I think this goes very much in line with Dr. Ely's talk, the ICU variables that were not associated with development of PTSD, I think, can seem counterintuitive. So basically, having patients awake more during their ICU stay did not seem to cause more PTSD symptoms. And so the thought was many years ago that having patients awake and knowing that all of these things were happening to them may be scary and may lead to the development of more distressing symptoms after they leave the ICU. But what, in fact, we found from this systematic review is that just the opposite was true, that if patients were allowed to be awake with a spontaneous awakening trial, spontaneous breathing trial, if they had lighter sedation as opposed to deeper sedation, or if their sedation strategy was really one that focused more on pain, that these individuals did not develop more PTSD symptoms. Similarly, other ICU variables that were not associated with PTSD were older age, reason for admission to the ICU, severity of illness, or ICU length of stay. And so the take-home message here is that the traditional risk factors that we think of when we consider post-ICU physical impairments are not necessarily the same factors that are associated with worse psychological outcomes. And so we may miss the boat if we focus on just the most uh, severely ill patients in terms of their Apache score, for example, or the patients that had the longest length of stay in the ICU, that really these might not be the factors that are contributing to the development of PTSD symptoms down the line. So in summary, the take-home messages are that at six months, one in four ICU survivors had substantial PTSD symptoms. And the one year, at the one-year mark, one in five patients had substantial PTSD symptoms. So these numbers are in line with what we see for people that have been exposed to war or combat or a, a traumatic event like the World Trade Center attacks. These prevalence numbers are actually quite in line with what we've seen. Risk factors include pre-ICU, anxiety, depression, as well as these memories of frightening things happening during the ICU stay. Decreased sedation does not seem to be associated with more PTSD symptoms, so all of the benefits 
that we see from getting people up and moving and having them awake are not predisposing them to then having more PTSD symptoms. So all the more reason to have our patients awake and moving as much as possible. And traditional risk factors for physical impairment are not the same risk factors that seem to be associated with PTSD symptoms. So I welcome any comments, questions. This is my email address. And then I'm also a member of the OASIS research group at Johns Hopkins, which is founded and directed by Dr. Dale Needham. And I've put our web link there for our site as well. There are some great videos that are linked on that site. Um, if you'd like to hear some patient testimonials, experiences, uh, it's a great resource. Thanks, Anne, for this uh, very nice presentation. We have a question for you here. Sure. Um, Giuseppe is uh, saying that most published studies related to follow-up experience held in a 6 to, uh, to 12 months period after hospital discharge, while PTSD is to be dealt with uh, as early as at discharge time. And he wants you to comment a little bit more on this. Okay. Sure. I think if I'm understanding the question, um, it's basically why are we kind of waiting so long to assess symptoms and why aren't we really trying to figure out what's going on with patients sooner and intervene earlier? I think that's a great point. Um, you know, one notable thing in order to, if you recall the slide on diagnosing PTSD, patients really need to have symptoms for at least a month after the ICU stay in order for uh, a diagnosis of PTSD or this to be substantial symptoms. That being said, I completely agree that we should be looking at ways to intervene in the ICU immediately after the ICU and ongoing as patients transition back to the community to try to prevent and address these symptoms. Uh, one thing that I'm sure you're familiar with is a concept called the ICU diary, uh, which is pretty uh, common practice in Europe, but here in the United States, it's not something that we typically use. And I think this is potentially a great way to uh, allow patients to begin processing their ICU stay really from you know, the moment that they're awake and able to interact. But I completely agree, and this is a great point, that early intervention is, is key in most things that we're talking about here. Yeah, I have another question for you. Is that uh, it, It's a sort of a scary thing to know that what we do in the ICU, this frightening ICU experiences, uh, is the only factor that you find. Actually, that it's in our field that it's related to PTSD. Uh, what can we do when? I mean, we are still uh, intubating patients and we are still putting... Uh, uh, enteral tubes, or what can we do to prevent this or to, to make this experience less uh, frightening? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So I think some of the keys are identifying people who may be at risk for any number of reasons to be more likely to develop PTSD symptoms. So, you know, individuals who have some pre-existing anxiety or depression and really making sure that we target those individuals among other risk factors, you know, people with other risk factors that may predispose them to be sure that we're intervening as early as possible. I think what's interesting about this uh, concept of the frightening memories is these memories seem to have a delirious component to them. So, you know, it's, it's memories, it's sort of a clouding of what actually happened in the ICU and the patient's interpretation and processing of that memory in a way that's not completely intact with reality. Uh, and so there is some thought that 
intervening in a way that allows patients to process these memories more in real time and with, with more intact reality may prevent these sort of delirious memories down the line that may precipitate PTSD symptoms. Yeah, well, very well. And uh, a last uh, question, uh, uh, and we are in the low and middle income countries, just uh, improving our process of care, our early recognition, uh, treating adequately these patients. And uh, I think that we are very far from uh, uh, caring this patient properly after discharge, mostly in the public system where uh, this kind of support is almost uh, non-existent at all. What can we do to uh, stimulate people in these settings uh, to, to see the importance, the relevance of uh, PTSD, and uh, how can we deal with this? Um, so, so I think you're asking how we can deal with uh, sort of bringing this to attention in, in lower-income countries. Yeah, because we are focusing our attention now in, the, in, the, in all the process in the hospital, but we are not taking care of this patient properly after discharge. You know, I think just as we've seen in terms of early mobility and having people awake in the ICU is that it does take, to some degree, kind of a, a culture change within the ICU setting where we start emphasizing from the moment patients, you know, hit the ICU door that we're thinking about their recovery and not just their survival. And that can be, a, you know, a very challenging concept to take hold, but I, I think that's probably at the heart of, of how to prevent a lot of these things that we see uh, in terms of PICS when patients leave the ICU. Thank you very much, Anne, for this very nice talk. And I think that we need to come to an end, uh, this whole meeting uh, that lasts for so many hours, and we are just in time, uh, as settled before. And I want to invite Pex uh, to make the closing remarks for this uh, first World Sepsis Congress that reached an amazing number of uh, uh, subscriptions of our, uh, around 15,000 people were looking at us this, uh, this, for these two days. So thank you all, all the speakers that are still with us, and uh, thank you, Anne, and be welcome again, Tex. For the past 30 hours, we have witnessed a global community of health advocates, policymakers, clinicians, epidemiologists, experts in quality and safety, and concerned citizens, including those afflicted with sepsis, lend their time and collective wisdom to expose sepsis as a global health threat, as well as outlining the need and potential avenues to mount a robust response to combat sepsis. I speak for all of us at the Global Sepsis Alliance and the wider community that sepsis will no longer be ignored. We know that the task is enormous, but we know that collectively we will be able to prevent sepsis and improve care and outcome for those who are afflicted. It is for this reason that the, World sepsis, the first World Sepsis Congress has brought together these highly ranked experts, including NGOs, policymakers, patients, patient advocate groups, renowned clinicians and scientists, and passionate and visionary leaders. To the more than 10,000 of you from 40, over 140 countries who have listened in, I say thank you, and please join us as we continue on this important mission. Your enthusiastic participation has left us more convinced that our goal of advancing the global fight against sepsis, which includes vaccination of at-risk populations, improve compliance with sanitary measures, early diagnosis and treatment of sepsis, 
as well as the reduction of antimicrobial resistance and the promotion of appropriate use of antibiotics is within reach. For success, health professionals as well as victims of sepsis and their families need to encourage their representatives at the UN World Health Assembly to support this initiative because early diagnosis and treatment will save millions of lives while public health measures will decrease the incidence and, and burden of sepsis. Moreover, this initiative will contribute to the sustainable developmental goals by reducing maternal and child mortality and building more resilient and equitable health systems for all. No one individual or group can achieve this goal. However, the collective effort of all of us, uh, those who participated in this program and those within our collective circle of influence can make a difference. The WHO has a decisive role to play. They have led many initiatives in other areas that contribute to sepsis care, but overall success requires a holistic approach including vaccination, clean care, early recognition, and evidence-based sepsis management. Hence, public health initiatives will be very important. For this reason, through cooperative efforts with the health ministries of Austria, Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, Switzerland, Israel, Serbia, and Germany will lobby for next year's World Health Assembly to adopt a resolution on sepsis. For this, we are very appreciative. However, we need the support from other nations, and you can help us by lobbying your ministers of health to provide them with support for this resolution. Thus, this conference should not be the end, but the springboard to galvanize our efforts. I am asking for your support and would request that you please go to the GSA website and pledge your support and contribute to advocacy efforts worldwide. On behalf of the Global Sepsis Alliance, I would like to thank the Center for Sepsis Control and Care and the Yeda University Hospital as the main sponsors of the World Sepsis Day and the First World Sepsis Congress, and our industry sponsors, the World Head Office Team, the more than 100 national and international organizations who have endorsed and promoted the Congress. I would also like to thank Catherine Hendricks for her unstinting support, the many families who speak out, our ambassadors, uh, Minister Helge Braun, Sir Liam Donaldson, Envoy for Patient Safety at the WHO, CDC Director Thomas Frieden, and last but not least, the German Ministry of Health, whose message to the participants was very encouraging. I wish you a good day, evening or night, wherever you are, and look forward to working with you. Thank you all for your support and efforts in combating sepsis. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who made this possible, especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. We will continue with the session Prevention of Sepsis on October 21st. I hope you tune in then.